Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times. And today I've got uh, three guests with me in the studio. We're going to be talking about marijuana and the Indiana Criminal Code, um, a bill that would overhaul the state's criminal code slightly lessens the penalties for marijuana possession in Indiana. Some legislators have said the bill is too soft on drug crimes. In response, the bill was changed to increase the penalties, so they are still lighter than current law, but stricter than the changes originally proposed. And we actually had a program on the the uh, overall comprehensive plan to change the criminal code a few weeks ago, but we didn't talk much about marijuana, so we're going to focus on that today. So uh, you can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. You can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And when you do any of those things, you'll be able to talk with our three guests, Dave Powell, who's executive director of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council, Steve Dillon, the Indiana criminal defense lawyer and and advisory board vice chairman for the National Organization for Reform of Marijuana Laws. You may know it as NORML. And also Elena Larson is here. She's a graduate assistant at the Office of Alternative Screening and Intervention Services at Indiana University. So welcome to everybody. Thanks for being here with us today. And uh, we're going to we're going to get back into this criminal code. I know there's been a lot, there have been a lot of changes since um, since we talked about it. We had Matt Pierce in the studio with us. He was one of the one of the bill's authors, and he talked about how it was such a bipartisan effort, and people had spent about six years actually working on that. And uh, as you all are aware, Governor Pence took a look at it and thought that maybe it wasn't hard enough on on some uh, some of the lower end. Uh, crimes, so uh, it's been revised since then. So I wanted to, to just start with, with Dave Powell and, and ask from the prosecuting attorney's perspective, I mean, is, is Indiana going the right direction? This, this, uh, the bill, the whole idea to, to rewrite the criminal code would make, uh, I think in that bill, it has people on the upper end uh, spending a lot more time in jail. But then on the lower end, what we're talking about mainly today, uh, there it, it really did ease up on on marijuana marijuana laws. So, well, I I, I sat on the uh, Criminal Code Evaluation Commission and have been involved with this uh, Criminal Code rewrite process for a couple of years now, pretty extensively, and been involved with it on a day to day basis uh, with Representative Pence and the legislature. It's been going as it's been going forward. I'm sorry, Representative Pierce. Um, Time will tell. Uh, certainly, the uh, the idea was to put proportionality into the criminal code. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of consensus that the code, having been written in 1974 and adopted around 1977, was due uh, for some revision. There's a lot of support for the six felony classifications, and this 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 document does, or the the code as it's going forward, does increase penalties for murder, rape, child molesting at a high level. But uh, it, it broadly reduces uh, many of the drug penalties, especially the dealing penalties. Uh, prior to this recent amendment on marijuana, it significantly reduced penalties f- for marijuana. Uh, whether, whether those reductions will work is, uh, is to be seen. Uh, certainly law enforcement and prosecutors have real concerns about that, knowing that our recidivism rates are driven by addiction and, and crimes involving theft. Uh, one of the big concerns that I raised at the end of the CCEC I was the only member of that to vote against uh, the product, and my rationale for that was that there was no no provisions in it for local funding to deal with addictions because those folks are still going to be prosecuted. They're just going to be they may not be in the Department of Corrections. It's more likely that they'll be at a local uh, a local jail or probation department or community corrections program. And 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 how how are we going to pay for those additional people? And and the current bill doesn't really deal with that yet, and uh, so it's kind of open and. We'll see what happens. Yeah, that was one of the issues that we did talk about a few weeks ago. Linda Brady from the Monroe County Probation Department was here, and so uh, their workload was going to increase a great deal. And There's a good chance it will, yes. Yeah. 
Steve Dillon, uh, your sort of overview of this whole process. Well, you know, uh, several governors ago, um, Frank O'Bannon started about uh, 2000 talking about prison overcrowding and the need to uh, release 700 inmates because of overcrowding. And uh, uh, Governor Daniels uh, echoed that and worked to uh, uh, reduce incarceration in, in Indiana, and we, we now have uh, another opportunity to do that. Indiana incarceration rate has increased 40% in the last 10 years despite a decrease in crime. That's compared to Michigan's 2%, Ohio's 13%, and Illinois' 0%. That's the uh, from the Justice Center Council of State Governments in 2012. The problem is uh, we're not – the way it's going is we're going to need to construct a new prison facility within five years, and it's going to cost the taxpayers of Indiana $1.2 billion. We spend $150 million a year in Indiana arresting and prosecuting about 16,000 mostly young people and minority people for less than one ounce of marijuana in the state. We have about 1,300 to 15 marijuana offenders, and it's clogging up our prison system. Uh, it's costing about uh, sixty to $80,000 a year to keep somebody in prison. And we just can't afford to keep arresting our own citizens for marijuana offenses, of all things. We just can't afford it. So is it going the right direction to reduce uh, slightly the penalties of marijuana? Yeah, it's going one step in the right direction, but we need to go miles in that direction, just like the rest of the country has, uh, quite clearly. Uh, Rhode Island just this week is the 16th state in the country to decriminalize marijuana. We have two legal marijuana states, if you don't count Alaska, which would make it three. We got 18 medical marijuana states. Uh, most of the country believes it should be decriminalized now, so the, the politicians really shouldn't be afraid of, of voting for reform of marijuana laws. Even in Indiana, 54% in a poll last year for decrim. So. It's it's taking one step, Bob, in the right direction, but we've got miles to go to really uh, uh, help our penal system and, and people in Indiana as it relates to marijuana. Okay, now if you could see us, we're on TV. You would note that Steve Dillon's on one one end of our panel, and and uh, our prosecutor Dave Powell's on the other end. And right between them is Elena Larson, uh, <laughs> graduate assistant at the Office of Alternative Screening and Intervention Services. So, Elena, you were telling me a little bit about what your office does, but you're uh -huh. sort of you're working on the ground with with people who have addictions issues. Correct? We are so. Uh -huh. First, I'd like to say that as a publicly funded institution, Indiana University is much more beholden to the federal government than we are to state laws. Um, and that sort of drives part of what our drug and alcohol policies are on campus. Mm -hmm. um, but from the front lines, I can say that we don't necessarily want to be punitive. That's never really our approach. More that we want to kind of find students who are having a trough difficult time with marijuana and other addictive issues and sort of address those before they escalate by the time they graduate. Mm -hmm. and, and what are you what are you seeing? I mean, are, are you seeing more students or, or issues with addictions increasing, decreasing? Every year we seem to get more students um, coming through our office with severe addiction issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the extent that that's influenced by marijuana in particular, I can't really say. A lot of students are coming in um, with sort of multiple substance abuse issues now, alcohol, prescription drugs, and usually marijuana does play a part in the substances they use, but it's definitely not the only one. I think, uh, I guess I'll expand the conversation a little bit. I mean, being on a college campus, you know, we know there's a lot of alcohol use, and, and I, I don't think anybody would be surprised to think that there may be some alcohol addiction on campus, but I guess I, I haven't thought about a lot of students. You know, it's a it's a party scene, but I haven't thought of a lot of students that really have an alcohol problem. Am I am I wrong? <laughs> well, addiction is a yeah, process. I, um, I yeah, guess. I would say mostly yes. You're wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> we you want know, honesty on this show. Yeah. <laughs> students who are experiencing addiction issues at you know, in their early 20s, aren't going to look the same 
as a bum asking for spare change outside of a liquor store in his 40s or 50s. That's not what this looks like. It looks like binge drinking on a regular basis, so consuming more than four drinks per occasion for women, more than five drinks per occasion for men, um, oftentimes three or four times a week minimum. Mm-hmm. And those are low numbers. We see students coming with very high blood alcohol content and work marijuana back into the conversation. There are students out there, um, around 1% to 2% of our student population smokes marijuana almost every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that about 1 in 9 adults become addicted to marijuana. And so we see a lot of those students who don't necessarily think that their use is a problem, but they're making a lot of choices about their education, about their social life, based on the availability of marijuana. And that is a problem. These students, are they, are they referred to you through the court system or, or through some sort of judicial review with the university? They're referred to us to the IU judicial system. Okay. All right. They don't just come to you on their own and say, I've got a problem. We do see some clients that are self-referred, but the majority don't come to us that way. But we will kind of keep seeing them for as long as they need that sort of support. Okay. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811-877-285-9348. You can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Dave, you wanted to add I, to I wanted to – I know this is not a debate, but uh, <laughs> I don't know where Mr. Dillon got his numbers. But uh, Indiana prison population has not increased 40 percent in the last 10 years. Over the last 40 years, yes, but not in the last 10 years. In fact, over the last five years, it's been absolutely flat. And over the last 10 years, the rate's been less than 5 percent. So uh, we can have a debate all day long about those numbers, uh, and I think it's – I can safely say without any question that no one convicted of misdemeanor possession of marijuana is in the Department of Corrections. I mean, people do not go to the Department of Corrections for misdemeanor uh, convictions, and the large number of folks with marijuana convictions in this state have to do with uh, uh, misdemeanor possession, many of which are pretrial diverted. One of the things I want to comment on marijuana is that there has been a softening of attitude in this country uh, with regard to marijuana. That is that is a phenomenon that is occurring, and we're seeing that in, in the public rates that are going up. Uh, as a result of that, marijuana use at the social level and recreational level is increasing. Uh, the, and we know now that uh, emergency room, uh, emergency room uh, treatment for marijuana abuse is higher than for heroin abuse, and that's continuing to rise. Uh, the medical community and the law enforcement community have done a lousy job of pointing out to the public of why smoking marijuana is unhealthy and increases risks and increases risky behavior. We've just sort of sat back and, and not paid attention to it. Uh, the American Medical Association says very clearly that smoking marijuana is, is the wrong way to ingest medicinal marijuana and, and, and strongly opposes that. There are other medical forms uh, where marijuana Maybe the the uh, THC ingredients uh, could be used for pain or, or vomiting, uh, but smoking is not the right way to do it. It's, it involves high-risk behavior. And we know that when you combine, many of our kids today are polysubstance abusers, mixing alcohol, marijuana, and other drugs. Uh, and it is a huge problem. Uh, and marijuana contributes uh, in this softening attitude. And again, by and large, because we've done a lousy job of educating the public of dangers of, of smoking marijuana, mm-hmm. uh, is... The consequence is what the young lady to my right uh, just talked about. Mm -hmm. Steve, you seem to want to respond. Well, where I got the statistics that Indiana's incarcerated has increased 40 percent in the last 10 years uh, compared to much lower rates of increase in the surrounding states of Michigan, Ohio, and Illinois come from the Justice Reinvestment in Indiana Summary Report and Policy Framework from the Justice Center, the Council of State Governments in 2012. That's the source of these statistics. It doesn't come from normal. Most of our statistics, we quote, comes from uh, uh, the uniform crime reports, uh, the the government's own statistics, um, or or an individual uh, analysis, such as the statistic that there's at least 500,000 marijuana smokers in Indiana. that's a, that's a pretty significant amount. That's a very conservative figure. That's Dr. John Getman, uh, who, who re- regularly researches and writes nationally. He's a professor in Virginia. Um, so that's where I get that. There was some comment about emergency rooms. Uh, you know, I bet there's a lot of people out there that have experience with uh, 
someone may know the benefits from using marijuana medically. Uh, I bet everybody out there knows someone that has benefited from using medical marijuana. It's a, it's been around for five thousand years as a uh, as a medicine. It was used in the Shenlong Dynasty, three thousand B.C. for thirteen medical uses. It's been approved by numerous government studies for uh, uh, medical relief from number of conditions, and half the population of this country is now in those 18 medical marijuana states that uh, allow medical use of marijuana, Michigan uh, being the closest one to Indiana about two years ago. Uh, the thing about emergency rooms, you know, that's a, that's not a, there's no reliable statistics that show that there's more people going for emergency treatment for using marijuana than heroin or narcotic drugs. That's kind of pretty ridiculous. Um, the statistics are so stilted because there is multi-use. Now, maybe somebody smoked a joint and then he took a bunch of pills or heroin and they go in there and they report on the list that there was marijuana involved in the admission. But the reason they're in the emergency room is not because they smoked a joint. It's because of the serious drugs like narcotic drugs or alcohol or uh, even uh, uh, pills of some sort. Uh, the synthetic marijuana bill, that's an example of how the legislature is screwed up by, by passing a not by not decriminalizing marijuana, they have synthetic marijuana, and it's not marijuana at all, and it's a bunch of chemicals on some plant material, and kids that are using synthetic marijuana or spice or K2 or whatever because they don't want to get busted for pot are putting themselves at serious risk, and those are the people that often go to the emergency rooms by taking artificial substances that really have nothing to do with marijuana. Okay, Dave, I'm going to give you a chance to respond, but we've got a couple phone calls and a question on Cover It Live, so... Uh, we're going to go first to John from Bloomington with your call. John? Hello. Uh, this may sound harsh and punitive, but it seems to me that students who are in a post-high school educational setting subsidized by the taxpayers uh, should not consider themselves coming to a university as a social service agency, but as an educational institution. And if they can't comply by the rules and remain clean of drugs and alcohol, they should be sent home. And I don't think the taxpayers should have to subsidize their care by providing services on campus. Okay, John, thanks for your comment. Elena, do you want to respond? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, The goal of any university is to provide a quality education to any student who might want it. Uh, Eventually, if students can't comply with the code of conduct, they will be suspended or expelled from the university. That has happened in the past. However, developmentally, 18-year-olds aren't really full adults. They're still developing. They still have a lot of cognitive growth to do. And I don't think it's necessarily fair to hold 18-year-old, barely graduated high school young adults to those same standards of behavior. They need a little bit of guidance. And that's kind of what the college atmosphere should provide We're not a social service agency, but we do provide help and counseling to anyone on campus who might need it, be they suffering from substance abuse issues or depression or anxiety or difficulty leaving home for the first time. Okay, we're going to go to our next caller, Sam from Bloomington. Sam? Uh, Hey there. My question was pretty much answered, I think. It pertained to the... uh, reference of more marijuana visits uh, to the ER than uh, for much harder drugs, which just seems preposterous, but uh, if they're lumping all the uh, the bath salts uh, or whatever the cannibalism stuff is uh, in with that, that, I understand how those could be skewed. And that was really my question, was where did that uh, stat come from? So, okay. Sam, yeah, Sam, thanks a lot for the call. We're going to have Dave uh, Powell respond to that. I, I would recommend anyone interested in looking at... Uh, positions on marijuana in this data, the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, which are, you know, they're not a bunch of prosecutors, but these are the the, the judges and the courts and the folks that deal with uh, marijuana and other drug addictions throughout the country have issued a position statement on marijuana, and that was issued in December of this last year, 2012, and they came out strongly against uh, any decriminalization or legalization of marijuana. And then uh, they do a wonderful job. You can go to their website. It's a fairly brief document, six pages, but it's wonderfully footnoted with data. And the bottom of their first page, uh, which says emergency rooms mentioned uh, for marijuana use now exceeds those for heroin and are continuing to rise. And they cite a study from the Center for Behavioral Health and Statistics and Quality that came out in 2010. And again, you can go to the website and 
print off this position statement, and it contains proper footnoting and all the studies, which are voluminous on this issue if you wish to read them. May I respond? Um, <clears throat> I'm looking at this report. Emergency room mentions for marijuana use exceed those for heroin. You know, there's a, there's, we've got 100 million marijuana smokers in this country. We don't have 100 million heroin users in this country. Uh, one of the arguments against the stepping stone or gateway theory is that somebody smokes pot and they use serious drugs. Uh, you know, I've got all kinds of uh, information to present to show that's not the case at all. Uh, but it wouldn't be surprising to me that people would go to the emergency room for whatever reason. Maybe they're in a fight and they smoke some pot. And so there's a mention for marijuana. But that's not the reason they're in the emergency room. That's just a mention for marijuana. And you've got to keep in mind that uh, for every 100 people that smoke marijuana, maybe one person tries cocaine or heroin or those serious drugs. All right. Let me give you our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington. Uh, 877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You can also uh, join us on a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And on this cover at live uh, chat that we have going on, one of, our, uh, one of our participants said, why do you think Indiana is moving almost in the completely opposite direction in this area than the rest of the country? Now, I have to say, sometimes we get questions that that are sort of based on a premise that Indiana is going almost exactly the opposite direction. I don't know that we could say that's true. So, Steve, you're, you you say yes, we can say that's true. I, I think we really can. Um, if we look around Indiana, I mean, I don't think that people in Ohio, Kentucky, uh, Illinois, and Michigan are notably smarter than citizens in Indiana. And yet, in Ohio, they passed a law to decriminalize marijuana in 1975. Up to 100 grams of marijuana is a civil penalty, not a ticket. So if you're driving from Columbus to Indianapolis and get stopped in Ohio, it's a traffic ticket. If you get stopped in Richmond, Indiana, they might try to forfeit your car. You're facing three years in prison, a $10,000 fine, a mandatory minimum license suspension for six months to two years, and your car, if you're on probation for a marijuana offense, can't be driven by anybody else for six months. Uh, what not? See, Ohio hasn't had a rash of, of heroin problems in the last 40 years. They've saved trillion dollars or more on law enforcement. A Michigan passed a medical marijuana law. Two years ago, I believe it is, uh, Chicago decriminalized possession of marijuana last summer. Uh, Illinois uh, missed by two votes having medical marijuana in Illinois this year. Kentucky passed a law last week to legalize hemp production. And last year, they passed a bill to make eight ounces of marijuana a misdemeanor. So everywhere in Indiana, just around Indiana, uh, surrounding states uh, have all done reform work. Uh, and, of course, around the country, most of the people in the country, by population, because of the 18 medical marijuana states and the 16 states that have decriminalized marijuana and the three states where it's legal, uh, most of the country has already made a decision to decriminalize marijuana. Well, I, yeah, I, I understand that. I just I was quibbling with the, the language that said that, that Indiana is going in the opposite direction because, in fact— this year, the uh, state senator Brent Steele mm-hmm. um, did suggest that we decriminalize marijuana. At least it's the discussion. So, why well, I wouldn't say that's the opposite direction from the way everybody's going. I'm just quibbling with the language. I, I understand. Okay, All but right. you know, maybe there might be a motive why Governor <clears throat> Pence would come out and say on TV two weeks ago when we're having these thoughtful discussions about reforming the laws, and he says on TV, out of, a, out of 500 pages or 400 pages of this bill, the total code, the only thing he talked about was marijuana, interestingly enough. And what he said was marijuana was a narcotic drug, it was very dangerous, and it would send the wrong message if we reduced penalties for marijuana. Well, marijuana's never been a narcotic drug. It's not an opiate. We took care of that in 1975, the last time we changed the penal code. We accepted marijuana from the definition of narcotic. It's clearly not a narcotic. It's clearly a less dangerous drug than alcohol or tobacco or aspirin. Uh, 
And, and I think the message that's being sent is we're backwards in this state. And maybe he wants to run for president and be tougher than everybody else in the country. But I can't really understand the logic of, his, of the governor's position. All right. We're going to get one more phone call in before the break. It's Stan. Go ahead, Stan. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, I'm, I'm more interested in the social aspects of marijuana use than the criminalization. It seems to me there is there is a clear amount of evidence that marijuana use in the very young is definitely damaging. Yes. This is by, proven by tests. I wonder if the participants could discuss that. Okay, we're gonna. I'm gonna. We're gonna hold on the responses to that. We're, Stan, thanks for your question. We're gonna go to it. We have to go to a break now because we're running a little bit late. So we'll get to your question when we get back. You're listening to Noon Edition. We will be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with our three guests today, Dave Powell, the Executive Director of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council, Elena Larson, Graduate Assistant at the Office of Alternative Screening and Intervention Services at Indiana University, and Steve Dillon, Indiana Criminal Defense Lawyer and Advisory Board Vice Chairman for the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also ask us a question on a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Before we took the break, Stan called, and we appreciated his call, and he asked a question about uh, marijuana and the uh, problems that it can cause uh, young people and children. Dave, you wanted to... I, again, I mentioned earlier this National Association of Drug Court Professional uh, Policy Statement, and in their statement they discuss health uh, and the impact of marijuana. Of course, the first thing they point out is that the THC levels in marijuana today are six times higher than, than they have been in the past. It mentions that uh, the addictive property of marijuana for one in nine adults is addictive, one in six uh, adolescents. Uh, of course, uh, we know and it mentions that marijuana negatively affects attention, memory, hearing, and intelligence after the intoxicating effects have subsided. Uh, has a negative impact on the development of the adolescent brain. Contains 50% more carcinogens than tobacco smoke. Uh, marijuana use during adolescence is directly linked to the onset of major mental illness, including psychosis such as schizophrenia, depression, and anxiety. Um, so there, and, and they cite uh, footnote uh, extensive medical research in these areas to support that. One can also go to the DEA website. They have a 52-page report uh, that's fairly recent that contains lots of uh, data and information on the same topic. Okay. Elena, do you want to uh, respond? You were talking about how you teach a class to a lot of, a lot of the young people that come through your office. I do. Well, Normal's own position is that marijuana is not a drug for children. Um, there is a lot of compelling evidence that smoking marijuana at younger ages, especially in early adolescence, is associated with negative outcomes um, past the age of 18. That's absolutely true. There's no, obviously it's not ethical to conduct large-scale studies on the effects of marijuana for very young adolescents, but there's no evidence that it's a safe, there's not really any evidence that there's a, it's a safe drug for young adults and that it should be used by young adults. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that we talk about a lot. 
Um, the average age of first use for Indiana University students is about 17. Um, even in states that have legalized marijuana for recreational use, the age of legalization is 21. We think that that's a pretty good cutoff. Um, developmentally, 21-year-olds are in a better place than 17- or 18-year-olds. And it's something that, if one decides to smoke marijuana, should be done um, by a weighing of the evidence for and against its use. And that's not necessarily something that young adults and teenagers can do very well. All right. Steve? Uh, I'm looking at this report, and I'm shocked. I'm shocked to see if... If, it, if the statistic they quote that says marijuana contains 50% more carcinogens than tobacco smoke is as accurate as the rest of the report, then this report is worthless. Uh, in 1972, President Nixon did the first federally funded government comprehensive study with Governor Schaefer of Pennsylvania, and they came back and recommended in 72 that marijuana should be legal for distribution and use because it didn't show any real serious uh, harms to it. Um, Nixon backed up on that uh, for different reasons. Uh, in 1988, Judge Francis Young, a DEA administrative judge, after a 10-year study, made the conclusion that marijuana was one of the, the safest substances known to man and that it was safer than alcohol or tobacco or aspirin. There's been no known deaths by overdose for marijuana in the history of the United States. Uh, and, and there's been plenty of research. Now, this is some British study, I, but, I, but I can't believe what I'm reading because I thought we dispelled the idea that, that marijuana uh, causes cancer about 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, so, Steve, but let me talk about the youth thing. A normal's position really is uh, just what you said. We we don't encourage young people to use any drugs, whether it's alcohol, uh, tobacco, uh, 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 any illegal drugs, recreational drugs. And I agree, your brain's not developed. Normal's position since the very beginning is that children uh, aren't in a position to make the best choice regarding drug use. You ought to be an adult. So we don't have a disagreement with that. Okay, I just want to put a, sort of a. Uh, a period on this discussion about about this study, uh, and just let re, or let our listeners know: British Lung Foundation, 2012. Um, that's what the study is, and uh, that Dave Powell was citing. You can go online and find it. Uh, I, I guess you'd probably just Google the British Lung Foundation. But there is a, a URL, but it's awfully long. We'll put it on the website. We'll put the URL on the website so you can. Take a look at it. Okay, we have a couple of callers. We're going to go to Daryl first. Daryl? Yes, I'd just like to make a comment, uh, a couple, if I may, uh, about my concern of talking about addiction. Uh, when you're talking about marijuana, there's a difference in addiction uh, between psychological, perhaps, and physical addiction. Uh, cigarettes have long been, uh, Surgeon General Coop said it was the most addictive plant, uh, substance on the planet, and we all know how difficult people, the time they have getting off of tobacco. I smoked marijuana for 16 years on a daily basis, and when I was 42 years old, I quit one day, never smoked another one, had no withdrawal, no physical uh, longing for it or, uh, you know, physical problems at all, stopping marijuana. Uh, I think it should be legalized, just from a libertarian standpoint to begin with, that, that, that it's a personal issue. But I would like to hear uh, some discussion about the addiction not being in the same class of tobacco or heroin or anything else. There, it may be habit-forming, but it's certainly not addicting in the, the same way as tobacco and alcohol and that sort of thing. Yes. Okay. And I'll take it offline. Okay, Daryl. Thanks a lot for the call. Elena? Sure. Well, first of all, how do you separate ha a habit that you can't stop and an addiction? There's really no clear line there. And research suggests that only about one in nine people who smoke marijuana regularly become addicted. That's not a large number. That's a much smaller number than people who smoke tobacco regularly or consume alcohol regularly. It's not a highly addictive substance. That much is true. Um, however, there's still the potential for addiction and abuse there. It's not going to be, it's not going to look the same as, you know, alcohol or tobacco addiction, which is a physiological addiction. It's going to be more of a psychological addiction where it's used as a crutch. Um, 
But the potential for addiction is still there. It doesn't strike everyone. And your story might be typical that you were able to stop cold turkey, and that's excellent if that was the right decision for you. But not everyone can do that. Um, Some people do have to enter rehab or enter treatment programs to deal with their marijuana addiction. It happens. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to, I'm going to just go to Elena as the middle ground on this. We're going to go back to the phones (laughs) and go to Bill from Columbus. Bill? Hi. Um, I don't know what I don't know. And I would like to know how much danger I would be in or someone like me on the road and there's someone else on the road smoking a a joint or a factory worker that works next to me and he smoked a joint uh, on his his break. Um, Yeah, you know. Okay. All right, Bill. We're got, we got some answers coming. Steve, we'll start with you. Uh, you know, Bill, uh, they have these uh, laws called DUID, driving and the influence of drug laws. Uh, we've, done, we've done a lot of research in the last few years in this country about that, and the statistics have shown that uh, uh, smoking marijuana is not nearly as dangerous as people that use narcotic drugs or alcohol. Uh, and then drive. And the problem is not with uh, uh, fifty to 60,000 people dying every year in the highway from marijuana use before. It's from alcohol use. Uh, so, so there's no real showing that uh, uh, a use of marijuana is impairment. But these DUID laws are what the real problem for this attorney and for many of my clients and citizens in this Indiana, because if you smoke marijuana, what they measure when you're pulled over for whatever reason are the metabolites from the use of marijuana, not active marijuana or THC, and that can stay in your system for up to 100 days after you smoke a joint. So let's say you smoke a joint or you smoke regularly, then a month later you get pulled over and they do a urine test, which isn't very reliable anyway, but and it shows the presence of past usage of marijuana. But by Indiana, that's a def- defined as impairment, which is ridiculous. And so... This affects lots of people from their jobs where they smoke at home and go to work and have a drug test because they're on a federal contract and they, they flunk. They're not impaired at work at all, but they're losing their jobs. Or they're flunking a, a, a drug test after being put on probation even though they haven't used because the tests are faulty or they're doing it at a five nanogram level, five billionths of a gram uh, when the net used to be a hundred, so many people in this country, including Indiana, are caught up with the the driving under the influence of drugs law, and as it relates to marijuana, it's totally uh, illogical because it doesn't measure impairment at all. Yeah, but, Elena. Um, if I can speak to about the relative safety of driving under the influence of marijuana or operating heavy machinery under the influence of marijuana. Normal's own principles of um, safe marijuana use include the stipulation that you should not drive or operate heavy machinery under the influence of marijuana, just like you shouldn't drive or operate machinery under the influence of alcohol, um, sedatives, or excessive sleepiness. Like a lot of other substances, marijuana's effects are dose-dependent, which means that the more you use, the more adverse side effects um, you will incur. Uh, And taking this back even further to the conversation we had earlier about addiction and abuse, someone who is smoking marijuana during their breaks on work, someone who is smoking marijuana either while they're driving or right before they're driving, that's indicative of an unhealthy relationship with marijuana. That's indicative of abuse of the substance and possibly addiction. Um, Perhaps if that person smoked, um, you know, one puff of marijuana, their impairment on the road wouldn't be as great as perhaps someone who had... um, had the equivalent amount of alcohol. But the fact that someone's willing to take that risk and make a decision to engage in an inherently dangerous activity, such as operating heavy machinery or driving a car, um, is evidence that they don't necessarily understand that relationship. Mm-hmm. Dave? I would, I would just add that I agree, I agree with her completely. Uh, uh, oftentimes, two folks mix marijuana with alcohol, and we know that it has an amplification effect to that and, and does impair their ability to function. Also, folks don't really know, and everybody's different, of if you're taking prescription meds for whatever reason and then ingesting marijuana, uh, they often have a multiple effect 
uh, and many people are polysubstance abusers. That means they don't use just mm-hmm. marijuana, but they use alcohol or nicotine or or other prescription meds with uh, with the drug, and and it's just not good for the work environment or operating a vehicle. Uh, clearly, it, it it impairs their ability to function properly. Mm-hmm. All right, I, let me give our phone numbers again: eight five five. Oh, thanks a lot, Bill. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, when Bill was in Columbus. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And the live chat is wfiu.org slash noon edition. Um, I want to go back to the law and, and the uh, what's going through the state house now. When Matt Pierce was here and talked about it, he said, uh, and I was kind of surprised that he would use these terms, but he said this was uh, – we were basically rolling back the drug war or the war on drugs in, in Indiana. And I, I thought for someone who's in politics, I, I, I thought it was a very bold statement for Matt to make. Uh, Steve, I wanted to to uh, ask you about you know that. The, that. That was the original law as it was um, – as it was going through the original bill, that it would be rolling back the drug laws or the war on drugs, I should say. Uh, I think, well, we had a bill a couple of years ago, which I testified in the legislature to, Karen Tallian's bill, and uh, to study this, and then another bill by Senator Steele from Bedford to decriminalize uh, uh, 10 grams, and she had another bill to decriminalize 85 grams. Those were real meaningful reform, but those weren't put into this penal code change. There were some amendments that's, that, uh, even uh, with Governor Pence, that slightly reduced penalties for marijuana and made suspendability for a second offense where maybe you couldn't get it in the past. But you can still get six years in prison uh, for a marijuana offense. You can, I mean, uh, do I see a major, major improvement in the marijuana uh, laws with these proposed changes? No, I don't. Uh, nothing like what we talked about in the legislature two years ago. Okay. Dave? You, uh, well, it's an open question. Uh, the, certainly the marijuana laws have been reduced uh, under the bill, uh, maybe not as much as uh, the normal folks would like. Uh, and, of course, their position is it should be legal, I assume. Uh, prosecutors uh, oppose that. With regard to the other with regard to the other drugs, uh, cocaine, uh, the narcotics, and the opiates, and amphetamines, they've been reduced as well. And and we share the prosecutors share the governor's concern as to the impact of that and whether that's a wise decision. Um, certainly, uh, this bill does reduce those penalties down some. Uh, uh, and it, if you're first time involved with that, you're going to get a considerable break. Uh, whether that's the right thing to do or not, time will tell. Um, but we do we do share and we have concerns about that. Uh, that reduction. Okay. Let me, let me let me follow up with that with a, a a question from our live chat. I'm going to direct this to Dave. It says it basically says you know why why should alcohol and cigarettes, which are dangerous products, you know, be treated one way, and and marijuana, which is uh, in this caller's uh, opinion a safer product, be deemed a Schedule One drug. Well, that's that's a public policy decision. The only thing we can predict is that we know that if we decriminalize marijuana use, it will increase. And we know that with increased marijuana use, there will be an increase in the crime rate, and there will be an increase in health problems, and there will be an increase in more cost to society uh, from, a, from a medical and professional and criminal justice perspective to respond to it. There would be some folks who would argue that maybe – you know, we ought to look at these alcohol laws and tobacco laws. Uh, the libertarian view, of course, is legalize everything and let folks just survive, you know, and see how we respond. But in society, we try to regulate that. Um, you know, certainly, that argument, I understand it. But And if we go there, uh, there's going to be a price to pay. And is the public willing to pay pay that price? And there will be victims along the way. Okay. May Steve? I just talk about Schedule 1? Uh, you know, uh, when they passed the Uniform Controlled Substance Act in 1970, they they made tests or criterion for including a particular drug in that category. And the two tests for Schedule One, with uh, like with heroin uh, and LSD, is no accepted medical use in treatment in the United States, and it lacks safety under uh, supervision with treatment. Um, and a high potential for abuse normally means you overdose and die, uh, and it, you can't treat people with any medical condition with that drug, and that's why it's in Schedule One. Uh, 
Marijuana never belonged in Schedule One. There's accepted medical uses and treatment for 5,000 years and in this country now. Uh, it clearly has medical use. It's clearly not a narcotic. It clearly doesn't lead to overdose and death. Uh, I take a uh, – let me just talk about uh, one other thing. The effect of a conviction – we're talking about – uh, the fact that the penalties may be reduced, but we're still arresting 16,000 mostly minority people on these racist drug laws in this country, uh, age, uh, both age and, and uh, uh, minority people, young people, are getting nailed by these laws. And the effect of a conviction, regardless of the length of time they go to prison or jail, is huge. For example, if you're convicted of a violent crime, you can get a Pell Grant and go to college. If you're convicted of possession of a joint, even if you don't go to jail, you can't get a government loan to go to college. You can't get certain jobs. You, you, you can't get... Uh, uh, it, it really affects the, this uh, mostly young person's future career to a horrible extent, and, and it's totally wrong. And one last thing, when, when he said that, that uh, uh, there would be a health concern, a crime increase, uh, uh, a health increase if marijuana were decriminalized, that's totally absurd. Um, uh, all this, you know, when, when, when California decriminalized marijuana in 1970. Four or something like that. They did a study two years later because of those arguments 40 years ago, and they found there was no increase in marijuana use where it was decriminalized. And that's been the general trend throughout the country in the last 40 years. People choose to smoke pot or not, not because it's legal or not. And uh, uh, there's no association between uh, marijuana uh, and health issues or violent crime. Okay, we're going to go to uh, Dave. You'll, you'll get a chance to respond before the show's over. But we we're down to about six minutes to go. We got a couple of a couple of listeners who want to uh, join us on the phone. So Joshua's first. Joshua's in Terre Haute. Hello. Um, God, I have so many rants to go along with this, but I'm going to try to yeah limit it to, to limit it to one or two. Okay, right, right. <laughs> I'm going to go back to um, the idea of the addictive qualities. Um, there is a huge, vast difference between psychological and physiological addiction, and the effects are huge and vast, and the way they should be handled different. Um, that's really obvious. Uh, and it's really obvious when I say that, okay, as long as psychologically addictive, habit-forming things should be legal or not, I think we should make religion and fast food illegal, <laughs> because... This country's obesity problems far greater than uh, uh, than a lot of other problems, a lot of drug problems, and so we need to legalize food that is habit forming. Obviously, fast food is television is um, one of the more detrimental things that have hit this country. I think we should legalize it as well. All right, and that's all I have to say. Thanks for the rant. Appreciate it, Joshua. He, he, That's his term, not mine. He offended all the fat people in the room. With <laughs> Elena, do you want to respond to that? Um, sure. There's actually not that much difference between a physical and psychological addiction in terms of how they affect your life. Um, there's Yes, there are differences in how one is treated because, one, um, if you quit heroin or you quit alcohol – uh, those can be life-threatening conditions. Um, quitting marijuana will not kill you in the withdrawal process. That much is true. However, if any substance negatively impacts your ability to function in day-to-day life, um, it's not. It's not so much. There's not so much of a difference between a physical and psychological addiction. That's all I really have to say about that. Okay, we're going to go to the phones and TJ from Bloomington. TJ. Hi there. Hey, TJ. Hey, how you doing? Enjoying the discussion. Good. Listen, I think I'm sure I haven't heard it all today, but I've at least somebody has brought up prohibition and of alcohol and what the criminal enterprise uh, that rose up to deal with the prohibition of a something that people obviously want and that is easily gotten. Um, and apparently, we haven't learned our lesson because we've done that same thing. But what I think is interesting and instructive right now is that. The Mexican drug cartels, the murderous Mexican drug cartels that exist solely because of our U.S. drug consumption, have now seen seen marijuana so profitable that they're willing to slowly infiltrate the Northern California growing operations 
and set up shop there illegally with illegal immigrants growing marijuana in Northern California. This is a fact. And they see it's so profitable for them to do that, in addition to all the other things that they're making money off of. Uh, that ought to tell us something about what real crime happens when, a, when, a, when something is prohibited. Now, I want to ask the gentleman from law enforcement respectfully. I didn't, know, I didn't catch his name, um, but he made a point earlier that if we decriminalize marijuana, crime would go up. And I want him to give me one specific example of how decriminalized marijuana would give an increase in crime. Okay, you're, you're, you're listening to Dave Powell, Executive Director of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council. I would, I would encourage the, uh, uh, the questioner and anybody else interested in that to look at the DEA position paper that came out in January 11, which goes through state by state. And in particular, it talks about California, the narco drug trafficking. It also talks about the medicinal, the medicinal clinics that have set up and that drug rates around those clinics, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, crime rates around those clinics, especially burglaries and gun violence, have gone up in every instance. Uh, the same problems occurred in other states that have adopted medicinal marijuana where people are selling marijuana for cash and, and the rates have gone up and uh, guns are being used. Uh, but it is, it is a huge problem, and, and many of these states that have adopted medicinal marijuana have seen crime rates in this this report goes through and details that in, in all of those jurisdictions where those um, uh, dis- distribution clinics have set up. And what is that report again? The DEA position on uh, marijuana was published in January 2011, and you can it's about a 50-page document that is footnoted as well, and you can find it at their website. Okay. Uh, you know what? We're out of time. I'm going to have to cut this, <laughs> cut this conversation off. TJ, thanks a lot for your call, and everybody else, thanks for your calls. Uh, Steve Dillon, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you, Thank you. very much. Steve's from uh, Normal and also an Indiana criminal defense lawyer. Uh, Elena from the Office of Alternative Screening and Intervention Services. Thank you, Elena. Thank you. And Dave Powell from the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council. For uh, my usual partner, Mary Catherine, who couldn't be here today, producers Gretchen Frazee and Emily Wright, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.